God designed us to be the very expression through which we know the love that he has for us. And I'll explain this in a second. Teaching brings understanding to expression. So, so for example, you can read all the books in the world about football. You can listen to all the analysis in the world about football. But all of that is only to bring understanding to playing or enjoying the actual game of football. Okay, so teaching is pointless unless it leads us to a greater knowledge of an experience of an expression. So this is what I'm going to explain this. Knowing about the love of God and knowing the love of God are two different, albeit related things. Knowing about the love of God and knowing the love of God. We don't want to simply know about the love of God. We want to know from experience the love of God. Okay? Y'all come on in. Come on in. Welcome. Glad you guys are here. We saved seats right up here in the front for you. You know, we got you. We got you. This is Isaiah's family. I think y'all hopefully met him before, but um, so glad you guys are with us this morning. So we want to know from experience the love of God. And how do we experience the love of God? This is what I want to talk about. We experience through the secret place, but as we're about to read, where we experience a huge measure of the love of God is through one another. Okay? In fact, I believe our experience in the secret place even will be hindered if we aren't a part of the witness of God's love among a company of beloved sons and daughters. So let me read this. 1 John 4, I'm going to start at verse 7. Super familiar passage if you've been in church at any point, but um, let, me just, let me just read it fresh. Verse 7, I'm in the NRSV. Most translations are about the same, so here we go. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. This is how it was revealed to us. That God sent, what's up guys? God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is how we know God's love has been revealed among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this way, or excuse me, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Okay, in this love, this is the love that God gave us, that he loved us first. Verse 11, beloved, since God's, Scott, excuse me, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. 13, by this way, we know that we abide in him and that he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the father has sent his son as the savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the son of God and they abide in God. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. There's a bod about 
five or six times in those two verses, okay? Love has been perfected among us in this. This is how we know love has been perfected among us. That we may have boldness on the day of judgment because as he is, so we are in this world. As he is right now, so are we right now in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he loved us first. Those who, listen to this, those who say, I love God and hate their brother or sisters are liars. Whoo! For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen, listen to what John says, cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. This is the commandment we are to follow. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Easy, right? Hmm. Let me, let me stand up a little bit. <clears throat> All right. What is John saying? John is saying the witness or the testimony that we abide in the love of God is our love for one another. Our example is Christ who loved us before we loved him. Christ was fully God and fully man. We know God's love for us because God, as a man in Christ, loved us with God's own love. Likewise, what fruit do we bear that proves the truth of who we are has been deeply rooted within us? How do we know that fruit has been born by us? It's our love for one another. We love with God's own love. And God's own love is he loved us before we loved him. So, real practically, the way that we love like God loves is to love before reciprocation. It's to love in spite of reciprocation. And we do this, I do this awful. I'm just be real with you. I'm not, I'm not good at this at all. I love those who love me. I like the old law. That's what the old law said. You love those who love you and hate those who hate you, right? And Jesus says, no, I'm telling you to do this. I'm telling you to love those who hate you. And that's, that's, a, that's a good message. But practically, I fail at this miserably all the time, okay? So I'm, I'm preaching this to somebody who's trying to work on this myself today, okay? So, so God makes his love known to the cosmos not through teaching, but John says, through action. This is how God makes his love known to the cosmos. It's through action. And what action is that? It's our love for one another. And how do we love with God's own love? Look at verse 13. He has given us of his spirit, is what it says. The Holy Spirit is given to us that we as image and likeness bearers of God, might be the witness of God's love for the human race around us. God's, ex excuse me, God expresses his love through us, not just in us. The way that we love each other is how we are designed to come into the full knowledge of God's love for us. 
this is why unity in Scripture is such a big deal. In John 17, he prays that we would be known to the world that we are his by our unity. That is, that is not a lot. That, that's not what we talk about. We talk about power. You know, the world will know that we're his by our miracles. And Jesus says the world's going to know that you're mine by your unity. And I wonder if the thing that has kept us from seeing the signs and wonders that we are designed to see is a lack of unity within the very body that's supposed to be the expression of unity and love to the world. Okay, I wonder if the Lord began to move in an extraordinary measure of signs and wonders, if it would actually be, become a stumbling block to those outside of the church that are looking in and seeing the division and yet God's still anointing it with grace. Grace is going to come to us by way of our unity. All right, if you go back to Genesis, the Tower of Babel story, what does it say? God says, if with one voice, and one mind, they set themselves to do a thing, nothing will be impossible for them. And so God, to keep them from doing, from building this tower, which is, that, that's an awesome story I'd love to teach one day. Um, and I will, one day, just not today. So I'm going to reserve myself. But in order for God to bring division where something is unified in a negative sense, he scrambles languages. So they're all speaking different languages. And the inference is, if they're speaking the same language, nothing's impossible for them. If they're speaking different languages, nothing is possible for them. That's the inference. Okay? And so we live in a day where we've got a thousand different denominations. We've got a thousand different voices. We've got a thousand different gods. Versions of God. We have a thousand different Jesuses. We have a thousand different Gospels. We have a thousand different versions of Scripture. Right? And all of those are usually competing with one another. You know, it's not like, you know, Baptists are over here saying, I want to add something to the Catholic's voice. So we're going to add this piece to the body. These guys are over here saying, those guys, we're not even sure if they're making it in. You know, we were joking about this Tuesday night, but me and Matt, you know, we, we grew up around conversations, you know, being Pentecostals of whether or not Baptists were going to make it to heaven. And honestly, I was pretty convinced as a kid they weren't. I mean, I was pretty convinced of that because they weren't speaking in tongues. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and so what we, what we live in is a, is a day where we're not known by our unity. If anything, we're known by our disunity. If you ask anybody, just any Joe Schmo walking down Main Street, why don't you go to church? Because uh, I've asked this. Nine times out of 10, they'll tell you there's too much division in the church. And it's true. You know what I mean? There is so much division. And there's also a fine line too that I'm, as a 31-year-old, still trying to find, which is speaking truth without compromise and not contributing at the same time to division. And I haven't done the great, great at that at all, you know? But I'm figuring it out. But what the Lord is leading us, I believe, into a first step into how do we put legs to the message of the love of God? One of the first steps to that is we begin expressing the love that we've been baptized in for one another and toward one another and then toward those who do not respond in the same kind of love. And all of us got those people. If you work a job in any sector, 
You have people around you on a daily basis that do not love you, especially with the love that God has given you. And what does it look like to love them? You know what I mean? Okay, it's a, it's a practical gospel. When you look at people that are really hard to love and you begin to express this love that God has given us to them, you begin to find out how extremely difficult it is for God to give us what he's given us. You know what I'm saying? And yet he still does. And the way that we even know what love is is because what John says, he loved us first. Okay, so why unity is such a big deal. This is why loving even our enemies is such a big deal. We're not supposed to love others with our love. We're supposed to love others with God's love. This is the spirit in us. It doesn't matter if you become, just for example, because we love the spirit in the room. It doesn't matter if you become bilingual and prophesy the end of the world 473 times and post videos on Facebook about not watching Disney movies because they're satanic. You can do all that if you want. But if you don't love, you have done nothing. And I love Disney too. So, you know, that's, you know. I know people what people say, but I personally like Disney, so you know. Um, they're, getting a little, they're getting a little out there, but I still love them. Um, but listen, listen. If, if we come at this through the back door, which is how so many people have tried to do, it doesn't work. Love has to be the door that leads to every other expression that we experience in the church, in the spirit, and in God. And if we do all the works and evangelize all of Columbia and tell a thousand people about Jesus, but we don't love, Paul says we've done nothing. This is what verse 17 says here in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse John. It says, as he is, so we are in this world. Now, I get the context of, or not the context, because it's not in context, but I, I get using this to say miracles, as he, power, as he is. And that's true as long as we get what the context is in chapter 4 right here, which is love. As he is, so are we in this world. What does John say God is? He, verse 8, whoever does not love does not love God or know God because God is what? Love. As he is, so are we in this world. You could say it like this. As he is love, so we are love in this world. Th this is what John 1 says. John says the word became flesh. This is what's interesting about this. The word is, not, is no longer restrained to words, though we love them. The word now has taken on flesh and bones and is living and breathing in the man, Jesus. And where is this taking place? Among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Incarnation is both a truth about God and a truth about humanity taking their rightful place in God. If God is love, we are love. As he is, so are we. This is why verse 8 also says, whoever does not love God does not know God. This is what the word know is in the Greek. The word know here, and if you have heard me teach this, this is familiar, but it's good familiar. The word know here is gnosko in Greek. It means a knowing from personal experience. 
It's experiential knowledge. So it's not whoever does not love God does not know about God. It's whoever does not love has not experienced God because God is love. You could say it like this. Whoever does not love does not know love because God is love. It's a lot of loves. If you don't love, you haven't experienced God because he's love. And if you have truly experienced God, you not only witness the love that God is, but you become a witness for and as love because you are like God in his image, reflecting it to the world. Another way of understanding it is like this. If you are a mirror, the world knows if you are reflecting God because it will see God in you reflected. Okay, man, I wish I had a mirror. But the way that you know what I'm reflecting is by simply looking at the reflection in my life. And the only way I reflect God is if I'm standing before God for him to be reflected through me. This is what John is saying. If you are standing in a place of intimacy with God, you're not just going to gaze upon love, you're going to become the reflection of love. And the world's going to know that you're his because it's going to look at you and not see you. It's going to see the God who is love reflected through you. That's why you can look at someone and their love and tell if they truly have experienced the God who is love. Because if you've truly experienced a God who is love, you are love. Ooh, sorry about that. Another, okay, okay. So then the question is this. Here's, here's the question I wanna follow up with this. What is God's love? In other words, what does it mean to love like God? Because it's one thing to say that. It's one thing to say we need to love like God. It's a whole nother thing to understand what God's love is like. And I would dare say that many of us for almost our entire lives, even if we grew up in church, have had a very small experience with the true love of God because our gospel didn't accommodate the true expression of the love of God. Our gospel was of an angry God. Typically, our gospel was of a God who, if he had his druthers, was ready to strike us down because of how evil we were. And in that gospel, there's a very small amount of space for the love that God is to peek through. And you get glances of it every now and then, but you always have to come in on the backside and sprinkle some wrath in there to make sure it's balanced. You know what I mean? We called it greasy grace. Preach too, I mean, you preach too much of that grace and it'll be a license to sin. I've never personally, now maybe I'm weird. I've never heard the message of the love of God and then immediately said, let me go do something against God. That's just me. The more of the grace of God I've experienced, the more it brings me into an expression of holiness. Because you can't experience a love that loved you while you were still sinners and then choose to respond as if you are still the one that was loved while you were still a sinner. No, that gospel comes to me and it becomes something on the inside of me that begins to transform me from the inside out. You know what I'm saying? That's why John says, this is how you know if you've loved, if you've experienced God's love is if you have become it. David says it something like this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why? Because if you get a taste, 
you'll hunger and thirst for the whole thing. So what is God's love? Let me, let me read this to you. Super familiar, but I want you to hear it outside of the context of a wedding, okay? This is what 1 Corinthians, I'm going to just start at the beginning. 1 Corinthians 1. This is what Paul says. He says, and I'm about to take this mic and fling it out in the rain, so y'all pray for me. If I speak in tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, listen, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We've all heard the gong and the cymbal. Most of us have been the gong and the cymbal, for being honest. And if I have prophetic, listen to this, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove all mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand my body over so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I've gained nothing. And this is what he says. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Listen to this. It is not irritable or resentful. You can feel it, right? It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Listen to this. Endures all things. Love never ends. True love never ends. The, the message, um, which I actually have tattooed on my arm, um, says love never dies. I, I think that is so cool. Okay? This is what he says. He says love is this. It's patient. How? Now, I'm already convicted. <laughs> you know what I mean? Patient. Love is patient. If you're married in the room, love is patient. Patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. Envy means to, you, don't, you want what other people have. So love doesn't want what others have. In other words, it rejoices in others' blessings rather than being angry that it doesn't have what others have. Love does not boast. This is what that means. It doesn't allow what they've been given to become a god. Love is not arrogant. Arrogant, you know what this means? It means having or revealing an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. <laughs> having an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. You could say narcissist. Okay? Love is not rude. Now, hello, all my social media users in the room. <laughs> Not all of y'all. I know y'all are nice on social media. Love does not insist on its own way. Just hear these. It is not irritable. I, guilty. Huh? I get so irritable. I was irritable this morning. If I'm being real, we had a, we had a situation this morning. Some of y'all got here early enough. 
And I was as irritable as you could possibly be. That's not love. Doesn't mean you can't be mad. Jesus was ticked when he went in the temple and threw tables. And I, I would, man, I would love to have been there. I've wanted to throw tables before, you know? Just not here. Y'all don't throw tables in here. If you do, you pay for it. But um, no, I'm just joking. But there's some truth in every joke. Okay? Love is not, it's not resentful. It does not rejoice when wrong is done, but rejoices in the truth. The Pharisees had a really difficult time with that. Really difficult time. Crucify him. You mean God? <laughs> Crucify. We want Barabbas. You know? We, we, we're usually, and I say we, we're usually not great at rejoicing in truth. You, that means you find joy in what is true, and you do not find joy in what is not true. You know? And I, I, listen, I know this is really practical. I know I'm not teaching you about Greek and Hebrew backgrounds this morning, okay? But we need this. We, I need this. Rejoice in truth. It bears all things. I spent a, a couple of hours last week. This was the message I was going to teach last week before the Lord hijacked everything. I say hijacked. Usually I'm the one hijacking his stuff, so this is his. But um, I spent about an hour on that phrase right there. Bears all things. Think about this in your relationships. How often do we bear all things? There's usually a glass ceiling to what we will bear with people in our lives. If we're being honest, there's usually a glass ceiling. And when it hits that point, we kind of just stop loving. And I'm not telling you you need to like become somebody's, you know, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, become a slave to someone. But what I'm saying is, is in a church body in particular, what does it mean for us to bear all things? What does it mean for, and I'm going to just use Emily because you're sitting right here, but you're, Emily's not going through anything crazy, so this is not a real situation. But what does it mean for, em, for something in Emily's life to just start going down here real fast and the church begin to step in and bear all things with Emily? You know? Like, what does it mean for somebody to lose their job and not know what's coming up and not know how they're, and the church to step in and bear all things with them? What, listen, just real, I'm gonna just say this on my back. What does it look like for the church to begin to bear all things with the pastor? You know what I mean? And you guys do this great, so, you know, I'm not, you know. But, like, what, is, what does this mean to love, for love to bear all things? Because this is the love that God has given us. What does it mean love, for love to believe all things, to hope all things? Listen to this. To endure all things and for love to never end. Is this the kind of love, this is the question I ask myself, and I'll just ask you. Is this the kind of love that we have for those around us? Is this the kind of love that we have for each other? Is this the kind of love that we believe God has for us? Do, do you believe that this is the love that God has for you? That God is not rude? That God does not insist on its own way? He'll invite you into a path that is the most excellent way, but he'll walk with you as far down the wrong path as it takes for you to realize it's the wrong path. But 
Is this the love that we believe God has for us? What we believe about God's love for us will always be the kind of love that we express to others, particularly within the body. Like, are we easily offended? Do we get irritable when things don't go our way? Do we bear all things in our relationships with each other? I know this is extremely practical, but this is awakening me to know the love of God like I personally have never known before. This is when the rubber meets the road and everything we know about the love of God begins to grow legs and walk and talk. Right? You know the verses. I've taught Romans 5 and Luke 15 until I'm blue in the face. We know it. We know what God's done for us, but the proper response has to be us then mirroring that love to each other. And not just each other in the room, to each other as in those around us outside of this room. This is what we, he, he loved us first. Do we love before we receive it in return? Do we love if we never get love in return? Do we love for what we can get out of it? Or do we love because we have become what God is? Do we have, listen, do I love people in my life because of what they can do for me? Or do I love people in my life because I have become what God is, which is love whether or not it's reciprocated? It's one thing to believe you're like God. It's a whole nother thing to become like God, which is love. John 3, 16, our beloved verse, says that God so loved the world that he gave. That's what it says. Love here is agape, which means love that prefers another. God so preferred us over himself that it overflowed and expressed itself in giving what he had, all of what he had, so that we could have his own life. Why? Not because of anything we had done, because we messed up the whole thing. So it wasn't because of us. It was simply out of his love for us that it overflowed in the incarnation. This is, this is the gospel. This is what you believed in. Like, no matter how you got in, whether if it was a repeated prayer or whether it was a Catholic mass or whether it was a street evangelist or whether it was just a YouTube video and you decided you need to start going to church to get your life together, whatever the case may be, however you got in, you got here in some way, shape or form because you came to the realization that when you were nothing on your own, Jesus stepped into your story to prove to you that you're not nothing, that you're actually so valuable, God was willing to trade it all to have you back. The gospel, right? But how do we respond to a love that so loved us that he was willing to trade it all to get us back? To so love those around us that we're willing to trade whatever it takes to get them back into the fold of the family. That's evangelism. We could preach about a God who is love or we could simply become such an expression of the God who is love that it begins to echo into the Midlands and say, not only is God present in a company of people, they love like we've never seen a group of people love. And then what stands against us? It's not division. It's not the gospel. And when nothing stands against us or in our way, suddenly sons and daughters have no excuse but to run home.
It's agape, for God so preferred. Love isn't what God does, it's who God is. We are included in the story of God, not because we earned it, but because God is simply love. That's it. Love is why you exist, period. Love is why you've been redeemed, and love is who you are. Now, when I say love, and I'm almost done. Praise God, what's happening right now? When I say love, I don't mean what love has become, which is, and we've talked about this before, which is this. It's like God is love doesn't mean God puts on blinders and says, oh man, I just, let's just get to the end. I won't see it, I won't see it, I won't see it. It's not love. Love is not passive. If I love my wife like that, we would have a horrible marriage. You know what I mean? Love is God looking you and all the mess in the eyes until you become who you are. That's love. Love is God having an unwillingness to look away at any point until you realize what's real. That's love. What is grace? The grace of God is not saying, I know they messed up, so I'll just forgive them. That's not grace. Grace is God looking at the mess and saying, I'm going to work tirelessly in this mess until it becomes something beautiful. That's grace. Okay, even even the idea of repentance. We, We see the idea of repentance as, I'm sorry, 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 I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. I'll read 12 chapters today. I promise you. I'll go tell three people about Jesus and then you feel better about yourself. Repentance. You repented. That's not repentance. Josephus, the the Jewish historian, um, right after the time of the New Testament, actually depending on when some of the books were written around the time of the New Testament, um, he wrote in his writing, um, the idea of repentance was a very common idea in that day and age. There's something Josephus writes to one of his, they're not his enemies, but somebody he's trying to convince on a historical argument. And this is what Josephus says. Josephus says, repent and believe in me. Josephus, the historian, okay? Here's what repentance means. In that day and age, repent, and Jesus says that phrase, like it sounds familiar because Jesus says that. Repent, believe, repent, believe, repent, believe. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is not Jesus saying, You're evil, so ask God to forgive you. God will forgive you, and then you just go about your merry way. The idea of repentance, metanoia, is you not just changing your thinking. It's you changing your thinking, and because you've changed your thinking, you change your direction, and particularly on a certain topic. In that day, Josephus was saying, you need to change your thought about this particular thing and follow my way of thinking in this particular thing. That's what repentance means. So even for us coming into repentance, what God is not doing is he's not calling us into um, making ourselves so low and so evil and realizing how nasty we are so that we can say, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. God forgives us and we rely on the Savior. You need to rely on the Savior, but that's not where repentance is. Repentance is you coming into agreement with God's idea about your life, your direction, and those around you and how you should respond to those around you. That's repentance. 
And so even in the idea of repenting and following Jesus, married to that idea of forgiveness, because it absolutely needs to be included in it. We need to ask for forgiveness when we've done wrong. But the reason we even ask for forgiveness when we've done wrong is because we've changed how we think about ourselves and those around us, and we've become the image and likeness of God. And when we live out of step with that image and likeness of God, things start disconnecting. Forgiveness and grace comes in to bridge the gap and bring us back into who we are, which is image and likeness of God. But the gospel message is all rooted in a magnificent, crazy, astonishing, relentless love that God has for us. This is why you exist. This is what St. Athanasius, Isaiah, you can hop up here, man. This is what St. Athanasius was dealing with in his writings around the 300 AD time when he wrote um, On the Incarnation. It's a tiny book, but it's one of the most Uh, It's one of the cornerstone theological books, writings of the entire early church on the incarnation. And this is what he was dealing with. He dealt with the question, if we were bad and headed into non-creation and losing our way, what did it profit God to do anything with us but to let us go? What was the point? God didn't need us, obviously. And this is what he said. He said, and it's just one of the most famous quotes of all time. He said, what was God then to do when humanity was headed into non-creation? And he says, he could have let us go, but if he let us go, it would show limit on the part of God. In other words, if he were to let us go into our delusion, it would show that God was either incapable of redeeming it or that God didn't care enough to redeem it. And Athanasius says the problem with that is that is completely in contrast with the nature of God revealed in the Son, Jesus. So then what was God to do? But to step into the delusion and turn the lights on. So what did it profit God to redeem humanity? What did it profit God? The story starts with the love of God overflowing into those who bear his own image and likeness. You and I, Ephesians 1 says, were chosen in love for adoption as sons and daughters through Christ before the foundations of the earth. Sons and daughters of God. So here's the question. If Veda, my daughter, ran away, what would it profit me as her dad to go get her? Because that's really what the question is. What would it profit me as her dad to go get her when she chose on her own to run away? There is such a love on the inside of me for the daughter that bears my image and likeness that my life now, because I have chosen to create her with my wife, now my life is incomplete without that image bearer in it. In other words, me and Jordan created space in our union for another. Therefore, the only way that space is now complete is if that other is filling the space that we created for her to fill. If you remove her from the story, suddenly because of God's decision to create space for you and I, 
if you remove you and I from the story, there's now empty space in God. In other words, God is now incomplete without us because of his choice. It's not because we're great. It's because he chose to make it like that. He chose to include us in the spin. And when he made that decision, he made the choice that if we are not in the spin, the spin is incomplete. So what was God to do? But to become us, to find us in the foreign land of our undoing, to take hold of us and bring us home. And the gospel is not a message that we teach. A gospel is the life that you and I are living. It's when people look at us and they see not just the love that we have because we just have love for each other, but they look at us and see the love that was willing to go to every extent it needed to go to in order to redeem us, overflowing into us. The early church, do you know why the early church so exploded in the early first few centuries? The reason it exploded is because there were things like plagues that were running the ancient world. Um, we have medicine and we have you know vaccines and we have hospitals and we have all the stuff that they did not have. So when a plague, let's say the black plague, bubonic plague, whatever that was called in the early 1900s, when that hits in an ancient Jerusalem, for example, in an ancient Judea area, when it hits, it's mass death. So we get the expression running for the hills from that day and age. Do you know why? It's because all the wealthy people who could afford to leave the region where there was sickness would run for the hills and get away, which left all the poor in the area where the sickness was spreading to die. This is how the early church spread so much. Christians, because of their realization for the love that Jesus had for them in laying down his life for us, would run to the place that everybody else was fleeing to care for those who were dying, some of them catching it and dying for themselves. And it's recorded that people would look at these Christians and say, why are you doing this? And they would respond, how could we not when we've been loved with a love that laid down his life for us? The only proper expression is for us to lay our lives down for you. And it began to spread like wildfire. It wasn't because they were smart. In fact, the early church didn't have the New Testament yet. It was being written in the time of the New Testament. They, it wasn't like they were theological geniuses that could answer every question that all the Greeks and Romans and everybody else after that had. It was because they loved with the same love that they had been, um, not that they had been, let's say, baptized in. And so what I wanna encourage you, I'm, bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm gonna pray over you and then we'll, we'll wrap it up and then we'll pray over Isaiah too. Um, I wanna ask you this today. Like I said, I know this is very, very practical, but what, what areas in your life do you need to mirror the love that God has for you in a more accurate way? 
And I believe the way that you do that is the secret place. The way that you do that is to be so face-to-face with the one that is love that you can't help but mirror that to everywhere else around you. But I just wanna ask, you don't have to raise your hand or you know shout out or anything like that, but I would dare say everybody in the room could experience the love of God on a greater level and then absolutely mirror the love of God on a greater level. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna pray over us that this would begin to be the expression that people know of the church as it relates to dream and other places around us as well. So God, I pray right now that we would not just be those that know love, that we would be those that have experienced love in such a way that we've become it. This is exactly, there's a lot of science in a married couples that have been married for a really, really long time that they in very subtle ways begin to take on each other's physical traits. This is, have you ever looked at an older couple and said, man, they look just alike. There, there is a lot of science that has proven that if you're with someone long enough, your body actually begins to respond physically, emotionally, mentally in the things that you like and dislike to become like the one that you have been with for so long. And God, I pray that we'll begin to walk so close with you step in step that we become to, or excuse me, that we begin to become the image and the likeness of the one that we were made in. I pray that when we speak, that it'll, it will speak not just our own words, that we'll speak the words that you're speaking through us by the Spirit. I pray that when we encounter people, even the ones that don't love us back, that we'll respond in such a love that it will become its own gospel by how we mirror the love that we've been given when we were loved first. The only way Columbia is gonna have a revolution of the love of God is if we become it. It's not enough to talk about it. It's not enough to simply believe for it. It's not enough to pray for it. It's not enough to expect other people to be it for us. We must become the gospel message that we are echoing into the earth. So God, more than any kind of apologetic that we could learn, I pray that our identity will be the apologetic that is only needed to echo the gospel to those around us. So Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for the love that you gave us first. In your name we pray, amen.